Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Sasan, can you hear me? <clears throat> Tonight I want to um, talk about working with thoughts, in case you've had a few. <clears throat> working with them, working with them skillfully, perhaps knowing uh, which thoughts to believe, which not. <clears throat> thoughts are slippery, aren't they? They're so tricky. They seem so real. Thoughts are not the enemy. This is something that's important, I think, to keep in mind. Sometimes we think, oh, if I only didn't have thoughts, then I'd be really enjoying my meditation. <clears throat> thoughts aren't the enemy at all. There's fantastic thoughts. This building was somebody's thought, a few people's thought. Uh, coming on a meditation retreat, hopefully it's still a, a good thought in your mind. <clears throat> and all the wonderful creations that humanity has manifested have come out of thought. As it says, the opening line in the Dhammapada, we are what we think, with our thoughts we make the world. And we can make a, a beautiful world or a hell realm, as we all know. Thoughts aren't the enemy. Believing your thoughts is the problem, especially when they don't really serve us much. It's amazing. I mean, that, that shows you right away how little control you have in your mind. If you had control over it, you'd only have wonderful thoughts, right? But it's just happening on its own. So... We all know how easy it is to get lost in them. The only problem, just that taking them to be real, identifying with them. And the Buddha talked brilliantly about working with thoughts. And you probably are familiar. I, I don't know, was there a talk on Papancha here yet? No? Okay, there was some question whether it would be one of the topics. I'm not going to talk about Papancha, but I'll kind of point to it a bit. Papancha, which is a, a great word, it's kind of a real onomatopoeic sound. Papancha is just this proliferation of thought where one thought gets dropped into the mind and all of a sudden it creates another thought and a whole mushroom of, mushrooming of thoughts until there's this whole world that we found ourselves in, not knowing how we got there. Papancha. Right. 
This is from uh, Calvin and Hobbes, a wonderful uh, cartoon about Papancha. First frame, Calvin says, here I am, happy and content. Second frame, but not euphoric. (laughs) Third frame, so now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy, my day is ruined. Fourth frame, I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. If we could only stop thinking while we're ahead, oh yeah, things would be so much simpler. And you, we all have this experience of papancha. You know, you might have the the classical VR syndrome of a pasana romance. Somebody just catches your eye, you know, and then you are off to the races with deep relationship, courtship, marriage, children, divorce even in your mind before you've said a word, you know. Or you think, oh, she looked at me. Oh, it's real. Or somebody does a a metta, loving kindness meditation, you know, and they're encouraging you, fill your heart with love. Send it out to the world. And you are just stone, right? And so the thought comes, I can't feel that loving space. I don't have love. I never had love. I was never loved. That's why I don't have love. I'm not capable of love. Why would anybody want to love me in the first place? You know? You know what I'm talking about, right? I, I was once on, uh, I remember that when I, when I was, um, uh, I was in high school, I, I was in this high school in New York, which is a, was a pretty rigorous high school that you have to have a, uh, a test to get in. And it was like, you know, really uh, high caliber, right? And I, like the first month or so, there was a chemistry quiz, a surprise quiz, right? and I got, out of 10 questions, three right. I got a 30. I'd never gotten anything you know, lower than an 80 in my life before on anything that, that I'd done. I got a 30. I went to bed that night. I didn't tell my parents. I was just too completely freaked out. And in my mind, I was sure I was going to get thrown out of high school, drop out completely, and I had myself on the Bowery in New York, you know, uh, just drinking wine as a, you know, that was going to be my life. I was absolutely sure that's where I was headed. It's amazing. Thoughts create problems when we believe them. And I wanted to um, share with you the Buddha's suggestions first on dealing with distracting thoughts. This is one of my favorite suttas. This is uh, in the Majjhima Nikaya number 20, the Vitaka Santana Sutta. 
the removal of distracting thoughts. Just in case you want a few extra tips. (laughs) So... (laughs) Uh, 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 uh. so this is when mindfulness isn't strong enough this is when you know the obviously the first strategy is to just realize oh thinking if you can notice that oh just this thought fabrication this mental formation oh no big deal Thinking, thinking, yeah. Sometimes that doesn't work. So there's a few other suggestions that the Buddha has. First one, and this is particularly, actually the sutta was given, particularly if somebody was trying to concentrate and um, they were, they're bothered by their distracting thoughts. So he gives some alternate strategies. Um, here when a practitioner is giving attention to some sign, some kind of concentration uh, object, and owing to that, uh, and because, sorry, giving attention to some sign, actually this is talking about it as a thought, and owing to that thought there arise in him or her unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hatred, with delusion, then one should give attention to some other thought connected with what is wholesome. When one gives attention to some other thought connected with what is wholesome, then the unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hatred, and delusion are abandoned and subside. With the abandoning of them, the mind becomes steadied, internally quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. Just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice might knock out, remove, and extract a coarse peg by means of a fine one, so too when a practitioner gives attention to some other thought connected with what is wholesome, the mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. So with each of these, there is a metaphor that, um, uh, that is, or a simile that's... Um, analogous to the strategy. So, what does that mean? Suppose you're minding your own business, trying to feel your breath, and all of a sudden, a thought of anger comes. Okay. And you can't be mindful of it. You can't, you're, it doesn't work to just say, oh, anger, 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 or thinking, thinking. He says, Replace it, the unwholesome thought, with a wholesome thought. Any idea what you might replace that with? Anger with anybody? Loving kindness. Yeah, good. Suppose you have a thought of um, doubt and you can't just mindfulness, mindful it away. What? might you replace it with? A thought about what? Anyone? Huh? 
loving kindness would be good, but say again, the Dharma, okay, an inspiring thought, something that gives you faith. Suppose if you are filled with a thought of um, uh, desire, any idea what thought you might replace it with? 32 parts of the body. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Yeah. Generosity, that's a good one. Yeah. If it's an object of your desire, any thought that you might... Impermanence. Yeah. Is this going to really do it for me? Maybe it will. You know. no, just think of what, what your object of desire is going to be like in, you know, whatever. <laughs> Six months, 40 years, whatever it is. Okay, if it's the package that you're looking at, okay, that you're attracted to. Impermanence, that's where monks meditate on a charnel ground and just look at, at the decomposition of the body. Is this what I'm so desiring? Okay, so that's the first strategy when there's a, a troublesome thought, you replace it with some wholesome thought. Okay? But that might not always work. So there's a second strategy. If while giving attention to some other thought connected with what's wholesome, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hatred, or delusion, then one should examine the danger in those thoughts thus. These thoughts are unwholesome. They are reprehensible. They result in suffering. You've got to be careful about the judgment there. They result in suffering. And when, when, he, when one examines the danger in those thoughts, then the unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hatred, and delusion are abandoned and subside. Uh, and with the abandoning, the mind becomes steadied, quieted, and concentrated. Just as a man or a woman young, youthful, and fond of ornaments, would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around his or her neck. (laughs) So too, when a practitioner examines the danger in those thoughts, the mind becomes steadied, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. What does that mean? Okay. So you see a thought coming. Uh Uh-oh, here it comes. And you, in this strategy, know where this is leading. This is not going to be helpful for my practice. This is colloquially put, or contemporarily put, don't even go there. You know that feeling? Don't. Go there. If you can see this whole constellation about to come, sometimes it's helpful to just name, oh, it's this story. It's this thought. On one retreat, I had this um, predicament on a a fall retreat uh, at IMS. Um, I'm a... I was actually much more a big football fan. I'm not not nearly as much as I was in 
when this happened. I was a fanatic at one point, especially when the 49ers were great. <clears throat> and I made the mistake of looking at the schedule before I went on the retreat. <clears throat> and I, I can't tell you what I did two days ago, but when I see something, it usually sticks in my memory. You know? I just have that kind of a memory, not for events, but for something, numbers and stuff like that. And I knew, oh, Sunday, they're going to be in Atlanta at one o'clock. Right? And you have to understand, if you're a football fan, you know this, my whole body would start gearing up like Friday, Saturday, until Sunday at one for three hours, I was in the game in my mind. Right? And it would take me a, like a little while to regroup after. And I went through two weeks of this and I said, oh my God, this is my whole, my whole retreat is going to be about the football season that I'm not, I'm not watching. <clears throat> so I, um, I said, well, I've got I to figure out something. I didn't know this sutta uh, at that point. But by Friday, I just kind of made it like a game. Okay, here it comes. And I'd see it out of left field. Football thoughts. Football thoughts. <laughs> Football thoughts. You know. And it was interesting how just naming it kind of framed it and I didn't jump into the movie as I had those first couple of weeks. I don't know if you know, the Buddha would agree with you know, my strategy, but it seemed to work for me. Just seeing, I don't want to go there, and just naming it gives me gives some space around it. So maybe that will work. Maybe it won't. If it doesn't, there's a third strategy. If while examining the danger in those thoughts, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hatred, and delusion, then one should try to forget those thoughts and not give attention to them. When one tries to forget those thoughts and not give attention, those unwholesome thoughts are abandoned and subside. With the abandoning of them, the mind becomes steadied, internally quiet, and concentrated. Just as a, a person with good eyes who did not want to see forms that had come within range of sight would either shut their eyes or look away, so too, when a practitioner tries to forget those thoughts and does not give attention to them, the mind becomes steadied, quieted, and concentrated. What does that mean? The Buddha, this is sometimes referred to in, in some teachings as forgetfulness and inattention. The Buddha is recommending forgetfulness and inattention. What does that mean? Well, you probably have experienced this for yourself. If you stay with a, a thought or an object and you get really exhausted, it was in one of the uh, morning questions, I think when Guy was up here, that the mind becomes withered is the word that's used. And when, you, when it becomes fatigued and withered, it just keeps on spinning out. So 
if you've got a strong pain in your body, for instance, instead of thinking, oh, I'm supposed to stay with that pain. That's the most predominant thing. After a while, you get exhausted, not so skillful. Time to forget and turn your attention elsewhere. Listening to sounds. Turning your attention to the breath. Noticing some place where you're, uh, you're not in pain. The same with a thought. Suppose you are in the middle of this thought and, you're, and it's been, you've been struggling with it. Turn your attention elsewhere. Again, to sounds. Sounds are a really good subject because there's real spaciousness in the mind and you can't control the sounds and it's just kind of interesting listening. Just take a break, take a mental break. <clears throat> Now, this is different from the first strategy. The first one is substituting something, a wholesome thought, for the unwholesome thought. This is actually turning your attention to something that's, that's happening right now in this moment. What else could I pay attention to within the mind or the body experience? So you're taking a break you're relaxing and you regroup and then when you're a bit more steadied then you come to some uh, some more mindfulness practice might not always work so there's a fourth strategy if while trying to forget those thoughts not giving attention to them there still arise unwholesome thoughts then one should give attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts. When giving attention to stilling the thought formations, they subside and one becomes quieted and concentrated. Just as a man walking fast might consider, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? And he would walk slowly, then he might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And then he'd consider, why am I standing? What if I sit? And then he would sit. And then he might consider, why am I sitting? What if I lie down? And he would lie down. Sounding better all the time. Isn't it? <laughs> By doing so, he would substitute each grosser posture for one that was, with one that was subtler. So too, when a practitioner gives attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts, they become steadied, quieted, and he becomes concentrated. This is, there's actually two um, interpretations I've seen for, for this. One is just chill out, right? If you're finding yourself getting spun out, what you need to do is just back off, take a break, relax, rest. It's not cheating. It's skillful means. Just, okay, I just need a little bit of space here. Go for a walk. Have a cup of tea. Uh, for me, I, I have a little uh, axiom. When all else fails, take a shower. You know? Just kind of changing the energy a bit. Another interpretation that I've read is that 
stilling the thought formations is seeing where do those thoughts come from? What's the real source of those thoughts? And you can sometimes feel the source of those thoughts as an emotion. You know, just this thought, this pattern just keeps on coming up. It's like it's on a, on a bubbling hot spring. And there's some feeling under there that needs to get attended to. Fear or um, anger or love or hurt or whatever. And so you go underneath the thought content to feeling the feeling, stilling the source of the thought formation by being mindful of the feeling. Or where do those thoughts come from? Oh, they just come from mind. Like when Guy did the, the big mind meditation and there it was, everything, just thoughts like clouds moving through the space. Being the space of awareness is a way to still the thought formation so you're not battling the content of the thoughts and you're just seeing, oh, they're just empty, coming out of nowhere, returning to nowhere. So that might work. But if it doesn't, there's one last strategy that the Buddha gives, which I offer with... Um, some mm, care and um, mm, caution, but this is the strategy. If while giving attention to stilling the thought formations of those thoughts, there still arise unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, hatred, and delusion, then with teeth clenched, and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with mind. And with the teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind, then unwholesome, those unwholesome thoughts connect with desire, hatred, and delusion subside, and the mind becomes concentrated. Just as a strong man might seize a weaker man by the head or shoulders and beat him down, constrain him, and crush him, <laughs> so too, with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one beats down, constrains, and crushes mind with mind, and the mind becomes quieter and concentrated. Now you might say, what is going on with that one? Now you have to remember that the Buddha was from the warrior caste and he was a warrior. We all have a kind of warrior spirit in us from time to time. A warrior, a true warrior, knows how to skillfully apply that firmness, not with hatred, but with fierce compassion. And you probably have done this for yourself. Have you ever gotten to the point where you just said, enough now to your mind. Enough, not now. And done it like a parent would to a, a child who's running out in the street and says, no, you don't go there. You know, or you take them away from the stove. You do it with love and you do it firmly. How many people have had that experience where they've just been firm 
and loving with their, their mind. And yeah, it's very delicate. You can't have any kind of aversion because if you do, you will just go right down the rabbit hole. I hate these thoughts. Get rid of these thoughts. Like, don't think about a pink elephant right now. Get it out of your head. And the more you try to push it away, there it is. So it's got to be done with great care and seeing, oh, I can be firm and not believe these thoughts and then you can use some of the other strategies. So, what's the point of all of this? What's the teaching? Particularly for people who are wondering, am I doing it right? Do I know the right way to deal with my thoughts? I hope as you hear these five strategies that you get There's no one right way. There's no one right answer. And if you go to different teachers, you know, you might go to an interview and and come out from the interview saying, oh, that teacher knew just what to say, you know, and maybe it works. You might go to another teacher who tells you something else and that you say, oh, they knew just what to say, you know. There's lots of different ways. So, how do you know which is the right way? What's the teaching? Jack Cornfield wrote a a really wonderful book. It's uh, now called Living Dharma. It was called Living Buddhist Masters, um, except most of them aren't living anymore. of 12 different masters in the Theravadan tradition. And each one sharing their approach to Vipassana practice. And he contrasted, it was like one chapter, this is the way to do it. The next chapter, somebody else saying, this is the way to do it. Somebody else, this is the way to do it. Some of them were clearly saying, There's many ways, this is my way. Others were saying, this is the real way. So um, be careful of thinking there's one right way. Who do you trust in this? This is the Buddha's advice again. The famous sutta to the Kalamas. I'm sure most of you are familiar with who are wondering so many different teachers coming through saying different spiritual doctrines and they were confused when the Buddha came through and said who do we how do we know it's so it's so confusing there's so much doubt it is indeed fitting Kalamas to be uncertain it is fitting to doubt you should decide what's true Kalamas, not by what you've heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, 
not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely and certainly not out of respect for a teacher, but when you would know, Kalamas, for yourselves, these things are unhealthy, these things when entered upon and undertaken incline toward harm and suffering, then Kalamas, you should reject them. And when you know for yourselves these things are healthy, these things when entered upon and undertaken incline towards welfare and happiness, then having come to them, you should stay with them. So, since you're listening to your thoughts anyway, you might as well listen to them with skill because ultimately you're the one that has to decide. You might hear something from a teacher and I, and I do uh, advise you to listen and uh, work with whatever guidance you have. But if something is intuitively feeling that there might be another way, in your heart, then you can trust that. In fact, do trust that. And if something is, is offered that you say, mm, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure about that, then trust that. Trust ultimately comes down to trusting the Buddha right inside of you. This doesn't mean trusting all the thoughts that come through, obviously some of them come through and are not so skillful or steering you in the wrong place. But you can trust in the awareness that can sense the truth. Taking refuge in, as uh, Ajahn Sumedho says, or Ajahn Chah would say, the one who knows. How do you get in touch with the one who knows? That's different from, I know, I know the right thing to do. It's a deeper sense of connection that's not about being right. It's just about feeling into the truth of things. Because right inside of you, when you take refuge in the Buddha, you are taking refuge in that place inside of you that is wise, that is connected, that is trustable, and you want to more and more access that. <clears throat> you have a Buddha right inside of you. There's Michelangelo, I love this, when, when someone lavished praise on, on him for it, uh, the skill in creating the beautiful masterpiece David, he uh, brushed aside the compliment saying, the man was already in the stone. I merely removed all the pieces of rock that kept him from being seen. Same with you. It's right in there. So seeing the truth inside, seeing or getting in touch, accessing your Buddha nature, if you will, as the Mahayanas and Vajrayanists talk about. This is what we're talking about. As the Buddha says 
Uh, this might have been quoted already. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and don't cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, free of attachments that visit it. The noble follower of the way really understands this, and so for them there is cultivation of the mind. This is what we're talking about. So how do you get in touch with that place inside that knows or that you can trust? First, I want to just ask you times, think of a time where you made a good decision. It might have been while you're here in the last couple of days. It might have been another decision in your life where you just were clear. This is the way to go. Got one? Remember the moment, if you can, where that clarity came through. I'd like to just ask, how did you know? What did it feel like? What did it feel like in your body? What did it feel like in your mind? And I'd like a few responses. There's no one right answer for this, obviously, but there's a, a constellation of, of cues that we can tap into. How do you know when you make a really wise choice? What's it like? Bill? Yeah, big Say again? A big, a big relief. You know, that feeling, ah, a big relief. Beautiful. Behind? There's a less of a sense of self. There's less of a grasping. There's more of a ease with it. Yeah. Less of a sense of self or grasping and more of an ease. Again, like relief. Yes. Susan? Very solid. Very solid. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Just Yes. What else? Yeah. Say again? Clear. Clear. Okay. There's clarity. Yes. Don? There's excitement uh, about a way forward. Ah, excitement about a way forward. There's a kind of aliveness that comes with that. Mm -hmm. What else? You know it, it's lower in the body and it's not talking. What's the feeling in the body? You've always called it knowing. What does it feel like? This is, uh, and not just for Maureen, but for anyone. What does it feel like in the body when you just know, that feeling of just knowing? What is that? A sense of wholeness, yeah. Good. What, what, other, what other visceral Vibration, okay, a vibration in your body. Um, connected to the heart. Connected to the heart. I also hear. You hear it, okay. And what's what's the tone of the of the uh, the message? A wise voice. A wise voice. Yes, 
right? Anybody else? Well, we all know that feeling. When it's there, it becomes obvious. But often we forget to listen in for it and we take the other voices to be real. I think a big part of the practice is learning more and more to listen skillfully. We're listening in every moment. The, uh, the, the image that I have is that of uh, the Tibetan, the great yogi Milarepa. You, know, you can always tell it's Milarepa in the tankas because he, he's the one that has his hand to his ear. You know? he's, the way I understand it, listening to the, the 100,000 songs of, of the Dharma. And that's what we're doing here. We're listening to the truth in every moment. We're listening to right now, oh, there's breathing, there's a sound, there's a sensation, there's a thought. We're learning to listen honestly, authentically to our experience and as we get better and better at learning to listen to the immediacy of the moment, we get better and better, hopefully, it seems that way over time, we get better and better at listening to the truth that's right inside of us. There's two ways that I, I found helpful to listen. One is, as, as you were saying, the, the tone, how the message comes in in words if the words are coming through with a finger wagging you better do this you better not blow it uh oh what happens if you don't and there's an agitation or there's a contraction or there's a fear chances are this is not the voice of wisdom but the the voice that you can really trust is a voice that is wise, say again, compassionate, a sweetness, it's kind, it's wise, it's supportive, it's, it's, um, it's connected. You can trust it. It's a voice you can trust. And just listening to the tone of those voices, the difference, discerning between them, is a huge aid in deciding, do I trust this one or not? And if all you're getting is the voices that are contracted and agitated, those are not the ones to trust. Those are coming out of fear. For me, this is my one, one little rule I have with myself. If it's the voice of fear, you know, you don't want to dismiss it. I, I take it out of the out of the driver's seat, put it in the passenger seat, right? put a seatbelt around it, <laughs> put a helmet around it, say, it's okay, dear, dear, we really honor you, really want to respect you, but you don't get the keys to the car. You know? and really honor it and love all of that, the, the, the agitation inside. It's just confused. It doesn't know any better, but it's not running the show. Wait till the voice of wisdom comes in there. If you've got to make a decision, just wait until you hear that one before you move ahead. So that's one way, hearing it, feeling it, 
uh, hearing it in your mind. And the other way is feeling it right in your body because your body doesn't lie. And if you're feeling contracted, agitated, tight, that's the voice of fear again. Or that's the, the, the source. It's sourced in fear. When your body is relaxed, relief, open, connected, aligned, supported. You know how that feels. Wait until you're connected with that before you act on those voices or start believing in them. So this is really, it comes down to another way of being mindful. Yeah, you can be mindful of the thoughts, but then discern the tone that they're coming from And when you see it's just fear going on or confusion or doubt, you want to really honor it but not get hooked by what they're telling you. And you don't have to beat those thoughts. You just hold it all with compassion if you can use that first strategy, mindfully knowing, oh, just getting lost, just getting lost, or using one of those other strategies. This is a really great aid, particularly if you need to uh, make decisions. We're at decision points throughout the day. You're sitting here in the meditation, and you might be wondering, should I stay with the breath? Should I open to a choice of awareness? Should I do metta or should I do vipassana? Hmm. Should I do metta for the dear friend or the difficult person? You know? All those points. Should I do walking? Should I get up and do walking or keep on sitting here? Lots of decisions you make throughout the day. It's amazing how we get through the day even with all of them. But there's a place in you that usually doesn't make a big deal out of it. You just kind of know, right? Usually, you can trust that first impulse. I remember this one teacher saying, first thought, best thought. That's, if it just, it's not a big deal, you can just go with the first one. But if you're going back and forth, back and forth, just listen and see what feels right. And there's the quality of, this just feels right, or no, this doesn't feel right. It's also really helpful as you're making decisions in your daily life. The more you can learn to listen to that voice inside, the more you can trust in the unfolding. Sometimes people can get paralyzed with indecision because they don't want to blow it. And you can get stuck for a long time. I went through this at one point in my life many years ago. I was at a big choice point and I didn't know which way to go. I had been teaching school for uh, about 10 years in New York. and um, But it was starting to get... It, lo- it lost the, the joy 
that I, I had for my, many of those years. And I felt like it was starting time for me to do something else. But I didn't want to leave my job because I was making $17,000 a year, which at that time was big money for me by myself. Right? And I was afraid, of what was I going to do? And I thought, well, maybe I'll go up to the meditation center and uh, IMS had just opened up and I'll go on staff there. That sounds pretty good. Maybe I'll move out to California because I'd gone there and fell in love with this place. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll finally do my trip to Asia, my Asian experience, right? And they all seemed really viable and, you know, legitimate choices, but I was afraid of making the wrong choice. And I was going around and around in my mind, not wanting to blow it. I finally got the teaching I needed when I was out in Colorado. Uh, Each summer I'd go out to Naropa, and I visited a very wise man who was very helpful for me in other situations named Reverend Miller. He was a psychic, $5 a reading. (laughs) Wasn't in it for the money. And he, he looked like Colonel Sanders, and, and uh, he just had this homespun kind of feel to him. And I'd seen him a number of times before, and I finally, I, I couldn't wait to see. He was in Denver. I couldn't wait to see Reverend Miller. Okay, he'll tell me what to do. And I went there, and I said, uh, I gave him all my options, and I said, um, so please, I'm really, really having a hard time. What should I do? And he said... Uh, well, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I thought, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and then he said, but I will tell you one thing. It doesn't matter. I said, it doesn't matter? What are you talking about? That's my life. I was slightly annoyed, you know. And then he said, look, <clears throat> and he believed in spirit guides and you know, other forces like that. He said, if you are stuck in fear, in indecision, then there's no way your guides can help you. You're going to be stuck for a while. But if you just listen inside and take the next step, and then the next step, and the next step, once you start putting yourself in motion, your guides can help you and support you. And you'll be led just to where you need to go. He said, you might go down one path and see, oh, yeah, this is right on. Or you might go down that path and, and then fi- and see, no, this isn't right. Okay, time to, use, to try another option and learn what you learned as you went down that first one. Or you might go down the path and think that it's going to lead to some scenario and something completely different opens up as you put yourself in motion that you never would have thought of in the first place. So either way, it doesn't matter. Your life is going to keep on unfolding if you're just here for it and not fight it and keep on listening to what the next step is. Best $5 I ever spent. 
you want to just keep on listening inside and all the wisdom is right in there. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, um, I went first to Asia and then moved to California. <laughs> and it worked out fine. <clears throat> you have everything you need inside. And as the, the Buddha demonstrates, let go of thinking there's one right way. You can just keep on listening. What's going to support me? What's really going to support me in my practice? That can be your guiding principle when you're thinking, should I do this? Should I do that? Whatever you do, if you do it from the spirit of, I'm doing this to help support me showing up as much as I can, as best as I can, as kindly and wisely and balanced as I can, that's skillful means. Trust it. In fact, it's probably more important to keep on listening and trusting and getting good at trusting that voice and really feeling for it in your body and hearing it in the mind than anything anybody else can can share with you. It takes some courage to look deeply. And sometimes if you're opening yourself up to listen to, to be here for all the voices, it can uh, be a little confusing. But underneath all the fear, all the confusion, there's the kingdom of heaven or the Buddha knowing right inside of you. That's your true nature. And once you get a glimpse of it and you get better and better at listening to it, then um, you'll have confidence that you don't have to figure things out. All you need to do is keep on trusting that your awareness will meet the moment when it comes. This is the only moment that you need to concern yourself about. Sure, it's good to have a game plan. It's good to, to have a sense of where you might be going. But don't miss out on this moment because this is where your life is. This is where your wisdom is. This is where the love that you want so much can shine through. It's right here, right now. So I'll close with a Last quote from the Buddha just before he passed away. And, and Ananda and, and, uh, and all the other monks were saying, what will we do without you? Who will we be able to look to for guidance as the great teacher, great master? The Buddha, Buddha's words, Ananda be, be a lamp unto yourself. Be ye lamps unto yourselves. Be refuges, refuge to yourselves. Betake yourselves to no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth, to the Dharma as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone besides yourselves. And those who either now or after I'm dead shall be lamps unto themselves shall betake to themselves no external refuge, 
but holding fast to the truth is their lamp, holding fast to the truth is their refuge, shall not look for refuge to anyone beside themselves. It is they who shall reach the very topmost height, but they must be anxious to learn. So let's sit for a moment. for attention. Enjoy your walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.